I'm Hillary. And I'm Clinton. And welcome to Black Atlantic. We are a podcast, website, and media channel with the goal of bringing Black East Coast voices to the world. You can expect to hear from us every week with guests, segments, panels, or roundtables exploring topics from all over Atlantic Canada. Also, be sure to visit our website at blackatlantic.ca. And follow us at Black Atlantic on IG, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and and more. Um, have you been? I've been great. How have you been? I've been good. I've been Amazing. good. I'm Happy excited to, to speak to our guest this week because I've spoken to him twice before. So I feel very privileged to be bringing Gary Weeks to our show today. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing him for our Black History Month segments with CBC, which we are super honored and privileged to do. And then I enjoyed our conversation so much that I thought by Blacks would really appreciate hearing what Black artists in the East Coast are able to do. Um, and of course, we have wanted to have you on the show for a while. Took some time, but you are here. Gary, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm all of a sudden just struck with a, a little bit of nervousness. All of a sudden, the cold sweats have started. <laughs> so oh my goodness, a, yeah. That's how I you know so it's going to be a great episode, though. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. No matter how many years you do this, get on a stage, do anything, the, those pre-jitter, uh, pre-show jitters are always great. <laughs> Um, I will also add too that the reason that I I know about you and I wish I I always feel that I wish I knew more of the the black network of New Brunswick because there's so many cool people doing so many different things. Um, but I became aware of you when um, I was made aware of Greg Frankson, who was our first ever guest on the show because of the Africanthology that you did the photo, the cover, the photo is yours. And of course, Tanjue, friend of the show, has some writing in there. And so it only makes sense to eventually have everyone who's participated with that project on our show. And that's how I came to know you and uh, learned about all the amazing work that you were doing and uh, felt it was really important to feature you on, on the Black History Month special. Um, I'll start though, like, so I know quite a bit about you, but I'd like you to tell our listeners, um, so you're from London and I know that you spent some time in New York city. And I'm just curious if you'd like to tell our, our listeners what that upbringing was like and sort of the, the trajectory that got you onto a Canadian soil. Yes. Well, uh, hello everybody. Uh, listeners, um, as I said, I'm Gary Weeks. I was born in London, England. Uh, to uh, a family from Barbados. My parents are both Bajan. Dad's from St. Philip, mom's from St. Andrew. And uh, although I didn't visit the country until I was about eight or nine years old, I feel very much a Bajan. So growing up in London, London was a very, very wonderful place for me to grow up. I lived in a, just a, a local they call it the projects or an estate. I came from a predominantly black neighborhood in a place called Brixton. And uh, all I remember growing up was an interesting drawing, but uh, with no real direction. But uh, I remember being having that freedom to run and roam up and down the streets and in London as a kid. Back then we it was we were in pretty rough war-torn neighborhoods. So there were what we called the Brixton Dump Gang, which I was a part of, where we would just run around collecting stones, throwing stones, building things, finding things, creating things. And it was just a, a very atypical childhood compared to what my kids had growing up. But uh, again, it was very adventurous. There was a lots and lots of uh, adventures that we could have. So 
Grew up in London, lived in London till I was 14 years old. Did what we call primary school, secondary school. And as a 14-year-old, my school was about to change from an all-boys school to a mixed school. And that's my parents, sadly, picked me up. And I've got uh, two older sisters and a brother, younger brother. And we decided to emigrate to New York City. And that's where my father's family were living. So when we hit New York City, New York City was not a big, big jump from what we were doing as kids in England. Because from one big city to another big city, the change is not huge. But in New York, the first thing I noticed was the heat. We went there in the middle of summer. I came there with these big lamb's wool sweaters that I wore at looking part in England and realizing that I was out just burning up in New York. But New York was a place where it was, again, more of an adventure, but more of an adventure with an edge. The edge was that you could you could feel like you could be hurt at any second or you could be, you know, we were playing around with a bunch of different stuff and, and gotten in, involved with the wrong people. But it was still very much uh, an adventure for me because I was always a comic book reader. And as a comic book reader and someone who drew comics as a kid, uh, I had this idea of what New York was like. But I really knew, even back then, that I would never live in New York for the rest of my days. I knew that I was just visiting. Okay, that is super interesting. Um, so growing up in London and New York, if you don't mind, um, I got a I got a bit of a nice picture of what the things were like there. Did you did you experience? Um, were you mostly around black communities? Did you experience racism? Did you experience? anything like that or did you were you able to avoid a lot of that during those it's, years it was weird because growing up in london i was in a predominantly white neighborhood we were one of two families that lived in our projects in our state so we were all sort of lower middle class or or just lower class and it's funny that we talk about it now because I've just come back from a trip i hadn't been to england 15 years and i just recently returned after seeing uh, my aunt, my 90-year-old aunt. And the neighborhood that I lived in back then, it was amazing. It was uh, terrifying on one hand, where you, you were careful to walk around as a kid, as a black kid in this predominantly white area. But at the same time, I was a soccer player when I was a kid, and a very good one at that time. So I had this sort of aura about me because I played soccer and all the kids in the neighborhood knew I was fairly good at soccer. So I, I was sort of left alone and my family was always a very community driven family. So we knew everybody in the area or as many people that cared to know us. So I, I, I knew that there was racism around and there was this organization called the National Front that was big when we were kids. And so there was always that possibility of things happening to me or to my family members, but luckily uh, we didn't really see anything or I didn't see anything firsthand. I hung around with a lot of white guys and uh, uh, back then as a kid. So I was always the one black kid in amongst a, a group of white kids. And so I held my own. I was considered to be a fairly good fighter when I was younger. So I, that was another thing that 
sort of stopped people from being overly aggressive or having attitudes towards me. But uh, yeah, I was I was very aware of my surroundings, but I did not let my surroundings control what I did and who I where I went. And then when I went to New York, New York was a different story because I was now in a predominantly black and Hispanic or Puerto Rican neighborhood. And in that Puerto Rican neighborhood that I lived in, you would not see any white faces. There was one white family that was in my neighborhood when I first got there, but they stayed there for maybe two or three years and then they moved out and we never heard of them again. So that era, that neighborhood was very different for me because I'm now walking amongst black people, but predominantly Spanish people. And at the same time, walking the same walk that I walked in London, which was one of sort of not caring or feeling like I was, uh, a, I was allowed to be here. And so when I went to high school in New York, if you can imagine, I came from an all-boys school in London, which was 800 people strong. And then I moved to a, a mixed school in New York, which was 3,000 people now. And uh, I was seeing pregnant girls in, up and down the hallways. I, I saw what I considered men at that time with full beards. And so just that alone was, was strange and very different for me. But because I'm, I've always had a sporty background, I joined the American football team. So straight away, I was surrounded by people that were my protectors or people that, if they were bullies, they were now my teammates. So I never got any flat from them or, or from that. In New York, there was racism. And the thing I, I say about New York, it's, it's extremely divided. And so you'll have black neighborhoods, you'll have white neighborhoods, Spanish, uh, Chinese or Asian neighborhoods. And so you were told not to cross these sort of streets to go into other neighborhoods. And so as long as you stayed within your own neighborhood, you really didn't see too much okay. uh, from anybody else. But with that in mind, when I started working, uh, what I tend to do is people watch. And so just traveling the, the subway from lower Manhattan to the Bronx, I would see how the complexion of the train, the train or the subway train changed as I went from lower Manhattan to the Bronx. Uh, downtown, it was a very mixed crowd. All the people that were got on were working people. And so everybody filled the train at, with all nations. And as you, as you started hitting the major stops, 42nd Street, a few white people would uh, step off. A few black people would step on. You get to 86th Street, and now all of a sudden you're getting the next stop is almost Harlem. And so by 86th Street or 96th Street, all the white people would leave. And the bus, then the train would be filled with blacks and Hispanics all the way up to the end of the line. So I noticed that as a kid and went, this is incredibly strange because I grew up in a, a fairly mixed neighborhood even though there were a few black families and there were majority white families, it was still pretty mixed. Whereas seeing the difference in New York, it sort of astounded me. And it, and it sort of left a mark on me, if, if I have to be honest with you. But at the same time, again, I looked at it as fodder for what I was in, intending to do, which was to create art, make art, and all these things that 
I have now experienced are somehow being fed back into my art, which uh, uh, is not a conscious thing, but it must be a, a, it's a, an unconscious thing that has been feeding me. Well, that's the perfect segue because I did want to ask, considering um, that amazing like upbringing and all of the cultures around you, and I will say my my cousin's from New York, and I'm going to ask if she feels that it's it's the same or if she's noticed that as well. Because she's never mentioned this like I don't know. I picture it almost like a a rainbow of browns that cascade through this like the subway, and I think that's so interesting. That's not how it is in Toronto. Um, yeah, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Um, but I am curious, as you mentioned, like it was, it was fodder for, for your creativity and your art. Uh, I'm curious at what point you started creating art and eventually what led to you choosing as like photography as the primary medium, or if you, it's what I know you as maybe it is not yeah. the primary medium, but I'm curious like how you ended up picking photography or working with that and and what led to that. So with, with photography, I didn't start off as a photographer. Because one of the things I, I say now is that in black households, you had cameras, but not every black household had a camera. And the camera used to be always this, this precious piece of equipment that was held, put on shelves and taken down for Christmas, for a holiday, and then put back on the shelf. So my, my entrances into art was at, um, as a high schooler, I could always draw and I could always paint. And I considered myself a good copier. So back in New York in the early 80s, they used to have album covers or they used to have Levi jackets, which had a, like a rectangular panel at the back. And so what people would do would get me to paint album covers or graffiti or those sort of things on these back panels. And I had my little business at 16 years painting these jackets and painting pants and jeans and whatever with all these diagrams. Uh, I went, I used to travel down to Lower Manhattan and hang out in the village and go to all the art supply stores down there to pick up acrylic paint to use for my, my artwork. But then I realized after a while that waiting for paint to dry was just not my thing. I've got this patience thing or impatience thing. So by waiting, for one coat of paint to dry before you can put on another coat, I realized that when I was given the opportunity to take a photography class in high school as an elective, and it was something that I, I did not need, I, I just needed to have another credit uh, before going to university, I decided to take photography. And uh, all of a sudden, I realized that this is where I would like to be because Although I, I had what was called a Kodak Ectomatic camera, which was a plastic camera that my parents owned, uh, I tried to do these incredible shots with this piece of equipment that, you know, upon reflection, it was not up to the task. But I realized that the images that I saw were the images that I wanted to take. And the fact that I could not draw from memory, so to speak, I didn't have that brain control where I could just see something and put my spin on it. I decided that this medium photography speaks louder to me than the painting. And, and even with photography back then, with film, there was still this waiting, but it was a different sort of waiting. You weren't waiting for paint to dry. You were waiting for your film to be developed at the lab. And that would take three to four days. 
before you would come back, you will pick up your film and you'll see all the mistakes you made after waiting for four days. But then there was this magic in that period of waiting that you don't get with digital, sadly. But um, that's how I, I started into film. Uh, 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 when I say film, photographic film. And then I was given the opportunity to work in a camera store. We've got a, an equivalent store in Fredericton here called Harvey's Studios. And we I work for a company called Times Square Cameras. And uh, so what I was originally there for was just a counterperson selling film and developing film for customers and selling the odd camera. But then they made me a manager and now I was running the place as a 16, 17-year-old. And then I, I still looked at photography as something that I could do, possibly in the future, but I did not know how to get into professional photography. So what I would do is I would buy a camera, I'd walk around the neighborhood and I would take pictures very early in the morning. And I would take these pictures, which I, I would love to find right now. They're in some archive of mine, but just to see what I did as a 17, 18 year old and how I saw the world back then. But uh, it wasn't until I, I got the opportunity or I was given the chance to have a job interview with a studio down in Lower Manhattan that photography really became part of my life. Uh, I was given the, the job just basically on the say-so of uh, a friend, a family friend of mine. And they knew I was interested in photography, but I did not know the equipment that they used, but they were still willing to take the risk. So I, I ended up working for this huge studio uh, called Nobart New York. And what we did was uh, all the photography that you see in, in circulars like Canadian Tire, those, those things that end up on your driveway, we used to do the photography for those circulars, those flyers. And so it was an incredible learning uh, period for me because uh, although I didn't, go the traditional route of learning through a university or a college I learned on the job and I was surrounded by very creative and talented individuals but they had to work within a brief meaning that uh, there was a certain way of photographing these items that you couldn't really deviate from there or put any artistic slant on it but it was very very good because you was you were just surrounded by creatives which was something that was Un, unusual for me up until that point. I was always the creative one in a way. So um, I stayed at this particular organization for, I think, three or four years. And we went through working originally, photographing tabletop items, we call them pack shots. And then we moved on to working with room sets. And uh, in room sets, you've got people creating these fake rooms and then photographers are there to light them. And one of the stories that I tell because I find it a fascinating one was that there was one photographer that we were working with and uh, we did not know we were photographing a model. And I always ask people, do you, do you know the distinction between a negligee and a nightgown? And everybody says, yes, they know the negligee the difference between a negligee and a nightgown. This particular model was wearing a nightgown, but the photographer who was not used to photographing people was so nervous when it came to communicating with this beautiful model, but in a nightgown, that I just stood there and went, wow, I just don't understand that. 
So as soon as I, as soon as that shot, the shot would went off without a hitch. But just this interaction between the model and the photographer, I found unusual. When I got the opportunity to move down to the fashion floor, and the fashion photographers were just yes and just excellent with people. I thought this is where I would rather be because photographing inanimate objects is not my thing. Although I can do it, I'd rather work with the public and work with individuals. And at that time, I wanted to work with models because models always knew that they were going to have their picture taken. So it always felt easier for me than to approach a stranger to ask them to have their picture taken. And so I did the, went the model route or fashion photographer route for a couple of years. Then I realized I'm not a fashion photographer. You have to live the life to be a fashion photographer. And I, I can take a good picture, but you won't see me on any runways. And so I, I enjoyed that part of it. But then when I decided that I would, I was in New York for 10 years and 10 years was a great Time. It was from the time when I was 14 to 24, but I always knew that I was going to go back to England. And so when I was 24, I decided that I had this green card, which was a piece of gold back then. Still is, I, I'd say. But it was a choice of staying, going back to England. And if anything didn't happen to me photographically, meaning I would not get a job in the in industry or I would not get my foot in the door, before the year was up, because it was the year that you needed, uh, you had to stay out of the country for less than a year, otherwise you would have to relinquish your green card. So before the year was over, I managed to get a job in a photo store, again, similar to what we have here in Fredericton. And so it became that decision whether to go back to America and start my life there or start my life in England, and I chose England, and I think it was the best decision that I ever made. So, okay. so I'm, I'm now I've left the left America. I did some university at, in America. Did some high school. Made a lot of great friends who I'm still in contact with. Um, but I decided that England was my my love. This that's my home. So I'm going back to England. And so when I went back to England, I started working in this camera store, and then I ended up working for another camera store called. Hasselblad. And in Hasselblad, that's where we started working with a lot of professional photographers, but we were behind the counter showing them how to use the equipment. But then I started getting the bug to, to start shooting, start doing more of my own work. And my work was very commercial, but at the same time, I always did something to the side, which was the art, the fine artwork. So whenever I would shoot, I would shoot uh, for clients and I would get paid, but then I would always go out on the weekend with friends or with colleagues and we, we would find events around town. We would find uh, street fairs. We would find all these things that were very British, very English, that we were able to at attend as photographers and uh, take as many pictures as we would like. Uh, one of the stories that I would like to add, I'm sorry about chopping, chopping back and forth, but when I was first in England and I, was, and I stopped photographing models, because as I said before, models are very knowledgeable. They know that they're going to have their pictures taken, so there's, there's that barrier torn down straight away. I decided that I was just going to start photographing people again. And so when I was... 
heading out with a group of other photographers who were older than me. I was like the young black kid amongst all these white photographers. Uh, they would rush out the car and they would start taking pictures straight away. I remember rushing out the car and then having to stand there for two hours trying to build up the courage to, to approach my first person to do this photography that I was very much into at that time. And uh, I realized soon enough that I can't spend two hours waiting to take the first shot every single time I head out. So what I started to do was build that confidence up, started to have my little little ways of uh, getting people on my side. And so now I could jump out the car and start taking pictures straight away and coming away with something that I felt was very good. I always liked approaching subject matter slightly differently. So equipment was one of those things that I, I used, which was different to everybody else's. And so the equipment that I was using back then to do my street photography was not your conventional street photography. Street photographer's equipment, it was not long lenses where you would stand across the road and photograph people from a distance. Uh, it, the equipment that I used was equipment that you had to be, for in my, in my case, less than a foot away from them to photograph their portraits. And then I would stand no more than 10 feet away from them to shoot full length because I was working with a very wide angle lens. So what it gave me was this sort of superpower, so to speak, where behind the camera, I could do anything. And I was very, very comfortable behind the camera to shout directions or introduce myself or walk up to people. But I'm not that sort of person in real life. Without a camera, I'm, I'm quite happy to, to sit in the background and not say much or, and just observe. So I always rem remember the power that the camera gave me and how, how the camera still gives me. That's I want, to share, I want to share something really quick because I don't know why I didn't think to tell you about this before, but it's just, it's very silly, but I happen to have a, a somewhat of a, I'll call it a, a relic to me, but it's my first camera, but it is a, a Barbie 50th edition Polaroid <laughs> that I won from YTV, a, chan a TV channel that I don't even think exists anymore in Canada. And I was looking for film for it today. And then I was like, oh, this is also coincidental, but this is my... Polaroid well, Barbie from you 1999. At, you should look at this thing called the Impossible Project. Okay. Uh, just Google Impossible Project, yes. and they still sell film. The film is ridiculously overpriced now, but it's it's available. Yeah. I, I was looking at Amazon, The Devil, and it was like $110 for just $40. And I was just like, oh, wow. I mean, okay, but okay. <laughs> for the, for yeah. the nostalgia of it all. For the, yeah, for like what one summer in Toronto, but I would love to. So anyway, this is my my relic. <laughs> the teenagers for like my daughter and all her friends for the past three or four years, and I think she may have grown out of it, but they were all about those Polaroids, uh, taking Polaroid pictures like crazy out and about with their friends, developing them, hanging them in their rooms. It was really neat to see that. And Gary, uh, your story brought a lot of good feelings, but definitely some nostalgia when you mentioned about how you take the photos. You don't know what they look like. Um, no. You got to wait three to four days to get them developed. And when I see photos from back in the day, even just not, not even professional, just growing up, I'm always marveled at how many of them are good because it's just that... Whoa in the moment shot and no one knows what it really looks like. And then you wait and you get it. And then it's, it's good. It's good. 
There, all those great pictures that I grew up with uh, watching and viewing and learning from were all shot with film. You know, digital was not around. I, I was there when digital first happened. Yep. But uh, And I'm, I'm saying to myself, we can get such incredible pictures with that quality of equipment. And now we're, we're into whistles, bells, and buzzers, and cameras that are, are the size of plates in front of you. And yet, yet you don't need all that. If you've got a good eye or you've got some skill, you can shoot one frame, two frames instead of 200 frames and still tell the same story. Yeah, and digital was kind of uh, gross when it first came out, wasn't it? I remember, I'm, I'm well, old enough to remember my dad had uh, got his first digital camera. It was maybe $3,000. I think it was, I don't even think it was on the megapixel scale. I think maybe it was 0. 0.2 oh, megapixels, stored like 10 photos on a floppy disk. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, they weren't great. And um, I was working for a company called Hasselblad, or when I was working in New York when we first started doing digital. And the, the bodies were literally that tall. They're about 10 inches tall because mm -hmm. the, the, the drive that held all the digital information was this huge block that sat beneath it. Cameras were heavy. The quality, the resolution was terrible. And we always used to say, this will never work. We will never, <laughs> we'll never like give the up. the internet, right? This will never happen. Yeah. And Amazing. Now it's crazy. And okay. yeah, those expensive cameras, um, I was offered a few of them just recently. And there was, there was because they're sort of not real, digital doesn't have this, this realness, um, they weren't as appealing to me as, as the older mechanical cameras. So I, I passed on those and I've got a wall full, of, a bag full of uh, just old-fashioned cameras from that mechanical age that I, I still love. And I can't wait to get back to using them again. That's great. Let's get into Atlantic Canada. So you went from London to New York, back to, I think it sounds like a different world in London, to New Brunswick. Is that correct? Yes. So what was, that was good. What was it like? What was it like moving to Fredericton, New Brunswick after living in these major metropolises? So I met a girl uh, that yeah. lived in Fredericton. That's, and yep. so uh, <laughs> we had come to Fredericton before, maybe when we had our first child. Uh, we came to Fredericton and thought, yeah, Fredericton's cool, came to Fredericton in the summertime. And so Fredericton was an amazing place uh, compared to the cities that I, I lived in. Uh, but at that time, we were just visiting because we wanted to, we had no intention of, of emigrating. So we had three kids in total, three girls. All my girls are in their 20s now, moving on to their own lives and doing really, really well, which I'm very pleased and proud of. But uh, it wasn't until we came up to that obstacle where my eldest was 12 years old and she was uh, planning on going to secondary school. But in England, secondary school is not around the corner and it's not, we don't have school buses. So the option was that we were going to put her on a, on a, a regular bus and she would travel a, an hour and a half to school and back. Uh, we weren't at liberty to, to drive them because the, the amount of traffic on the road, it would be, it's quicker by bus than by car. And uh, we had talked about coming to uh, Canada because my family are all in New York. 
uh, a few years before, but we weren't really ready. And then all of a sudden we decided, okay, we're going to do it. So we we bought the house or the, the, the flat that we lived in, a small two-bedroom flat where we raised three kids in one room and we were in the other room. And uh, we we purchased that, we fixed it up and we essentially flipped it. And we made a lot of money on it, a lot of profit. And that money brought us to Canada. And we came to Fredericton because her parents were Fredericktonians, where her father was. And so we were closer to her family, but also not a stone's throw from my family in New York. So uh, we came here. I came here for love, I guess. <laughs> and the, But the love didn't last which is another story unto its own. But Fredericton was an amazing place. And I still find Fredericton amazing. Uh, I could not believe that the people in this city, um, I was, first, let me talk about the people. In London, even when I went back there on this most recent trip, the thing about London is that you don't see the elderly on the roads after a certain time of day. You, they get up in the morning, and when the kids are in school now at nine o'clock, you'll see all the elderly shopping in London till about noon, because that's when there's a lunch period. As soon as the kids come out from uh, out of school at lunch, all the elderly disappear, and now they're they're sort of locked inside their homes until the next day, because it is terrifying for an older person to be out on the streets of London. There's a bunch of kids, school kids around. There's always the threat of something happening. So when I came to Fredericton, I was amazed at the fact that there were all these people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, running around, walking, going to theaters, going to restaurants, going to clubs at that, at that late stage of their lives without a care in the world. The people that were surrounding them were, were not frightening them or in, intimidating them in any way. So I thought, wow, I could live in a place like this because that that constant fear does create tension and stress within your body. So that was the first thing I noticed about Fredericton. Second thing I noticed was just how clean it was compared to the cities and the smells and the noise and, and the hustle and bustle. I'm not part of that anymore. I've grown, grown up in there. I can function quite well in a city, better than I can in the countryside, I'd say that much. But uh, I realized that for me, as a parent, I'm trying to give my kids the best possible start. And so the best possible start for them would be in a, in a place like Fredericton, rather than a place like London or a place like New York. If they want to, they can discover those places when they get older. But now giving them the best possible opportunity is what I'm here for. And that's what my ex-wife was here for to do. And so we, we, I think we achieved that. And now the kids are, as I say, successful. And they're, they're doing, doing the right thing, or whatever that right thing may be. So Fredericton was, was great for me. But then Fredericton was also very strange for me because it was, again, it wasn't even predominantly white. It was very white. And um, my ex-wife, uh, she's white. And so we had all of her family that we could call on. But we didn't really call on her, her family for not much of anything. But we and my family were in New York and I've got one relative in Hamilton, Ontario. But uh, we were essentially on our own. 
And uh, so I was amazed at the fact that I could not get a haircut anywhere. And then I was amazed at the fact that uh, I would see, I, I lived just outside the city. And because I was just outside the city in a little village called New Maryland, um, you didn't see really that many black faces. And you could go for days, weeks at a time if you didn't leave the neighborhood. You wouldn't see anybody else that looked like you. We had a great family across the road, uh, an African family, who I'm still in contact with, even though I've left the neighborhood now. But uh, it was just that day-to-day contact Coming from uh, London, where I worked amongst Black people, I, my family, a lot of my family were there. To nothing was was the biggest biggest shock for me. But as I say, I I, I tend to function well everywhere, or at least I like to think I do. So um, although it was different, I I sort of decided that I was going to make the most of it, and I think I have made the most of it times when I feel I could be making. I think we think that you've made the, the most of it considering we know who you are and things are going really, really well for you. But I'm I'm very curious because I I don't I hope I don't offend anybody, but I don't think I know that many photographers in New Brunswick who are doing as many cool and interesting things as you are. It could be the the fact the, the black factor that I know all of the work that you're doing and it's so interesting um and captivating. But I imagine was it difficult when you first came to Fredericton with like photography in mind? Like, did you start out thinking I'm going to pursue photography full time here in Fredericton? Did it take a long time? And did you face any like backlash as a, as a black photographer? Did anything like that ever happen? Or was it like open arms, all of the opportunities, then that's how you got to be on our podcast. (laughs) Well, I would say all that and more. Um, I didn't feel any backlash, but I did feel that I could not charge the same as my contemporaries. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's the industry. But I felt that I could not charge the same. Otherwise, I would not get the, the work. And so I grew up with amongst other photographers saying, you've got to keep your prices high. You've got to keep your prices high because it devalues. Otherwise, it devalues the industry. And I was always cognizant of that. But at the same time, in practice, I would do a lot of volunteer work. I would do a lot of work that was done cheaply compared to some of the prices that I saw people of lesser skill than I, or at least what I felt was lesser. And uh, and so I think that was the major thing. But when I first came to Fredericton, I, I, I thought to myself, I'm going to do this photography thing. Uh, one of the things that I talk about is when it came to the birth of my first kid, and it was the birth certificate that we had to sign. What's your profession? I was working as a sales assistant in a camera store. But I was I turned to my girlfriend who was who became my wife, or my ex-wife. So, so I turned to her and we were like, why don't you just put photographer? And I went, I can. And and I said, yes, I'll put photographer. And so straight away I thought, it's on the birth certificate now. I have to live up to that, that title. So I first started uh, taking pictures uh, at my local church. And uh, again, even in that environment, I did a lot of work for free. And I didn't, ex- I, I hoped people would come see me. 
and have their family photos taken. But I didn't get a lot of that. And I'm not sure if it was just my lack of advertising or my lack of screaming from the rooftops that I do this as a regular thing. But I didn't get a lot of work from them. Uh, and so what I decided to do one day was to take take up teaching. I was given the opportunity to teach. And so I started teaching at the local college, which was called the Center for Arts and Technology. And I was the head of the photography department. And uh, even then I found it uh, very difficult because what we learn and how we shoot in England is very different to how they shoot in Fredericton. So what I was doing was bringing that sort of attitude to my uh, class. And uh, it, was, it was all well received, but then there was a year that it wasn't as well received. And so the person that was uh, shoot, uh, that took over for me shot very differently and uh, still very good, but very different to what I did. And so I would say there was, I felt that there was a wall but it was one of those unwritten walls that you, you know, you you had to toe the line, you had to stay within the confines of of their what they felt was good or what they felt was acceptable. And because I did not really subscribe to that attitude, I don't think I was as easily accepted as others. So what I tended to do was bounce around. So I did a lot of freelance work and I worked photographing animals. I worked photographing uh, buildings, architecture. I photographed portraits. I photographed weddings. I did a little bit of everything just to, just to keep the money coming in. But at the same time, telling people, you know, this is what I do and this is how I do it. And so I gained a certain level of respect in the industry for that reason alone. But it wasn't until I started to seriously push that things started to happen. Um, but again, people are not as inclined to, to use a black photographer in the commercial sense before, I would say, the George Floyd incident or tragedy, I should say. Sorry about that. Um, and now all of a sudden, since that happened and Black Lives Matter movement started, uh, started in earnest, um, I, I feel that that was some contributory factor to where I am today. But at the same time, I think I was asked the question by a friend today, and I think it was down to hard work and, and a lot of uh, good fortune. You know, because uh, I sometimes feel I come across as non-threatening, I tend to get uh, into places where I would not necessarily get. But I always feel that I am very, very... Uh, diplomatic is the word I'm starting to use right now. And uh, with that diplomacy, I can sit and talk to most people and most people will get on my side. And so I can ask for things that the next person may not be able to ask for. But it's, it's a process. It's a process. It's a process of me living in the city and working uh, amongst uh, wealthy individuals very poor individuals and then doing the same in New York and just being able to straddle those divides. You know, we talk about code switching and I guess I code switch a lot, but I think that's, that's what I needed to be the person that I am today. And again, I'm not code switching or I'm not being a very different person. All I'm doing is making the person feel at ease with me. 
that I can get the most out of them and they can walk away with a good experience. Yeah. Thank you for stating all that. There was a lot of amazing insights in that one answer as well as a bit of emotion shared. Um, and I can certainly relate to you uh, being a salon owner in a, a city where, you know, people who own salons just don't look like me. Uh, and when we reopened, I remember, you know, for, for years there, we know that we kept our prices lower than other places, not because our team members work was of any less quality, but out of a fear that people maybe wouldn't come to us if we didn't charge what we were worth. And it does, it can degrade the industry and it's, it's not the right thing to do. And it, it took years for us to realize that, you know, that's not the way to be. Also, you're talking about code switching and that actually should probably be an episode all in its own Hillary. Um, some of us code switch to survive. I think a lot of us subconsciously code switch. It's just a survival tactic that's ingrained into a lot of us in this society. Um, so yeah, there's the pros and the cons and the arguments that you never should code switch. But as long as I've always felt that as long as you are not changing maybe your ethics, your morals, your values, maybe if you're changing just the words you use a little bit or the way you approach different people, that's just a part of being um, an outgoing person and getting things done. Did you well, want to add that, something there, Gary? Yeah, because uh, when I went back to England after not being there for 15 years, I was with my my cousins and my, uh, my cousins are uh, Jamaican. Uh, so my my first cousins are half Jamaican, half Asian, half from Barbados, whereas their cousins are um, full Jamaican, if there's such a thing. Sorry, I don't know. But I straight away drifted into Patois. And uh, and as soon as I walked through the door, I was like, what am I saying? Why am I saying this? But it was just, it just flowing out of me. And then a couple of days later, I'm hanging out with my old friend that we grew up with, and he's the white guy from London. And all of a sudden, I'm speaking, oh, blimey, mister, and, and using curse words. And again, I'm like, what am I doing? And I notice it because I'm making them comfortable. I'm making this guy comfortable. At the same time, I, I'm it's still me in both instances. I'm still saying the same things. I'm still making the same jokes. But uh, it's a skill that I guess portrait photographers or people who work with the public um, have. When it when you have someone sitting in your chair, you you take on their persona, so to speak, just so that they're comfortable. And you try to you try to talk about subject matter which will entertain them and, and appease them. Whereas you know, I I know a lot about many different subjects, but I don't know anything in depth because I deal with many different types of people. Yeah, yeah. And I just, again, I, I'm reflecting as you speak. I, I wonder if it's something we can control that we, we you, you, you don't even notice it sometimes. It's just, uh, yeah, where you just, anyways, okay. That was very insightful. I like that. Um, so this year, uh, sorry, actually, I want to speak about another thing. I think there's a lot to be said, too, about since the murder of George Floyd, um, there have been a lot more opportunities for black people. Uh, and I think rightfully and righteously so. Uh, I think this is a really interesting period in time where um, I'm not saying you or me or Hillary, but people who are deserving and were maybe found themselves in uh, not getting as many opportunities, but have the skill sets and qualities or finding themselves in lower economic situations. Again, I'm not talking about us but anyone um it's a chance for i've seen a lot of black people really raise their status start new businesses get those loans have those opportunities and i think this is a monumental shift in where if black people 
do the right things, the ones who hadn't been getting opportunities, they can really set something up generationally for their families and families to come, people who haven't had access to opportunities. So I'm, I'm glad that happened for you. Uh, and it's been an interesting switch in narrative in society that I don't know I if this wave is going to settle if this is the start of something new where we'll see a bit more equalization um and i i have a question for you but i think you want to add something again yeah well i i would i would add to that like with all those good things that have been um given towards the black community and to myself in particular there's still this level of you do have to still come up with the the job you still have to be the best you uh, because there's more pressure now than there was before. I was was given an opportunity by a CBC. And uh, at first I was like, why did I get this opportunity? And I, I there's some merit there, but it may have been because of what was happening at the time. But I still had to come up with the best possible picture for their story or for their entertainers or for their uh, media people. And uh, But I felt that the, there was almost more pressure on me now because I've been given this opportunity in the wake of the George Floyd murder. So I have to step up because, you know, bottom line, people, people, there's this still whole swath of people who believe that it, it was not an unjustified killing, whereas I fully am aware that it was a, it was I'm getting my words confused there, but basically everyone knows what you mean. Yeah. Everyone knows what you mean. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Were you going to say something? I was going to say before you ask your question that I, I, I would just like sympathize that like, I think I won't fully speak for you, Clinton, but I definitely feel the same pressure every time we're asked to do something for black history month or emancipation day or any partnership with CDC or anybody that like, I wish there was this understanding that I'm not, I'm not a monolith. I don't represent all black people. And yet there's yeah. this, the feeling that if I don't prove to our white community that we deserve these spaces, these spaces will be gone. And if I don't yeah. take some of this space then there's no representation and how can I share this space with other people in the black community? That's why we have a podcast, but it's, it's a very big snowball effect of, yeah, it's it's a lot of complicated feelings when you end up partnering with people and maybe sometimes feeling like you're a diversity quota mark, but wanting <laughs> that yeah. wanting that to stay because that diversity should be there. Um, I don't. Yep. I can be your your one little line in that check mark. You do add more. Put me there, but add more too. I think is my yeah. Add my more too. Yes, I, I I'm quite comfortable being there. But I know that there are other people behind me that are just as comfortable and they will bring something, a, a different flavor that I bring. Like I say, my, my, I'm sort of non-threatening. So let's put someone up there that's threatening and give them the same, the same level of attention and let them show the world. Because, you know, in the white community, it's been happening for a long, long time. Those, yeah. those threatening white people are being accepted as, as sort of uh, pioneers and and tellers of truths I, I find that to be quite ridiculous at times and in the end every dollar that goes towards you know our communities and our families again that is setting that's hopefully setting people up for the future uh yeah. for the generations to come <laughs> but I, I, on that note um i do want to ask you this year you became the first black person to have an exhibition at the Beaverbrook Gallery. And I, I saw those photos online and it was awesome and uh, very exciting for us to see. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you and a little bit about what the Beaver, 
Beaver Brook Gallery is for our listeners that have never heard of that before? So, uh, firstly, the Beaver Brook Gallery, I, I should have taken the website, but they're an internationally known uh, art gallery. They've got works, their main, their most prestigious piece by Salvador Dali, and they've got this wonderful uh, exhibit, or they, they own four pieces of Dali uh, in their collection. But then they've got British artists, uh, artists from all over the world. I'm, I'm not the best person to talk about the Beaver Book, I'm afraid. Okay, but at then. the same time, they're a phenomenal uh, gallery. And they're an anomaly in this area because they're a world-famous gallery in this small town of Bradenton, New Brunswick, which no one has heard of. And yet the, the quality of work, the quality in their collection is that rivals other galleries such as the Museum of Modern Art or uh, the Tate Modern in England. So it's incredible that we've got such a space in our small city. What was it like? What was the feedback like? What were, what were the, the guests that came to see your work? You, I'm oh, sure you were there a lot. Yeah. Uh, we we opened the. It's really strange as well. So the backstory between uh, the how I became part of the gallery was uh, during uh, COVID. During COVID, we I had my first sort of major exhibition at the Gallery on Queen, who now represent me, and Nadia Corey, the gallery curator owner. She uh, we decided to put together an exhibition by the New Brunswick Black Artists Alliance, which I'm one of the founder members of, uh, amongst others. And uh, we decided that we were going to have this exhibition to celebrate Black History Month. But at that time, we weren't ready. But I was ready with uh, a body of work that was luckily accepted into the gallery. So instead of it being a, a group show, it became a solo show with just my pieces. And I was showing work that was very different to what's at the Beaverbrook right now. So I, I had collections or parts of work from a Skull and Bones exhibition that I, I did, a solo show, one that was called History on Your Hands, which was another solo show. Ice Scapes was another. And so with these three bodies of work, we were able to, to put on a quite a decent showing at the gallery. Uh, one of the guys at John LaRue from the Beaverbrook saw that work and wondered who it was and why hasn't he heard of this person before. And in honesty, I was a commercial photographer and I was looking back at some of my pictures and, and I photographed John LaRue uh, five years, six years prior to us actually meeting formally uh, as part of the Beaverbrook. And so Fredericton's a very small town, so everybody knows me, but... Uh, I guess not everybody knew what I did. And so from the strength of that gallery showing at the Gallery on Queen, uh, we the New Brunswick Black Artists Alliance was asked to uh, partner with the, the Beaverbrook on a project which we were wait, wanting funding for. So the project was to, to shine a light on the Black artists in their collection but as they started looking through their collection, they realized that they didn't really have that many black artists uh, representing, uh, represented in their collection. They had a few white artists who had photographed black or painted black subject. And uh, we were like, hmm. And they had Americans who were 
who had one, who they owned one or two pieces of. And again, we were like, we're, well, we're a Canadian gallery. Where is all the Canadian black artists? And so it was something that they couldn't answer. But when we were looking through their collections, we saw, I saw pictures that I knew. And these were the work of Larry Fink, who's an American photographer, who uh, put together a book called Boxing. And uh, the pictures that the gallery owned came straight out of the book. And I was like, wow, how did you manage to get these? And so the gallery said that they were donated to him, to them. And as soon as we realized that we weren't able to um, get this show off the road, um, all of a sudden I was asked by uh, John Rue if I would curate Larry Finks's work for a possible show. So it was like, yeah, it's the first time the curatorial job that I was going to be doing. So I said, I said, yeah, I'll jump at that. And I'm, I'm up for any challenge. Um, but then at the same time, I, I said to myself, I've got pictures that I feel are just as good as Larry's. And I'll mention them to John. So I mentioned them to him. He asked me if he could see the pictures. We set up a, a lunch and I showed him 150 pictures that were of my boxing project. And he went through 30, 40 of them and went, this is fantastic. And then he suggested, how would you like a show? And what a, the story I'm telling everybody was that in the bottom back of my mind, I knew that we should have a show and I'd already figured it out. It was going to be Larry versus Gary. It was going to be his photographs again, uh, op opposed in opposition to my photographs. And uh, when he gave, when he said, yes, how would you like to join the two exhibitions together? I, I leaped at, leapt at the idea and I thought this was fantastic. So we, we originally decided that we were going to have the exhibition in January the 13th. But COVID has been either the best thing in my life or the worst thing in my life, because a lot of good things that I've done over the last two or three years has happened majority, mainly during COVID. And so we tried to um, open the gallery because the gallery has been closed for two years uh, for some major renovations. It's, it's an incredible looking space. It was an incredible looking space then, but now it's, it's going to be more, much more incredible. So the idea was that we were going to start in uh, January 13th. COVID put paid to that because uh, all of a sudden we went from yellow back to red. And so we had to close down everything. All the theaters were closed. All the galleries were closed. So instead of the gallery just saying, okay, you've missed your opportunity, they were incredibly courageous and said that we'll put it on in April 2nd. And instead of it being in January for two months, it will be in April for three months. The space that I had before where it would have been just me and uh, another exhibition, their recent acquisitions, would be the only things being shown at the gallery at that time. It turned into this big event where they've got work by artists called Ruapel, who's a Canadian uh, abstract artist who's on par with uh, Jackson Pollock. And then they had various works by other contemporary artists and, and a couple of photographic projects, which are still there. And I would invite everybody to go see those. But now, all of a sudden, I've got this new space, which I which has been given to me. 
I've curated uh, Larry Fink's work and deliberately chose just the black fighters because they would offset against the white fighters that I photographed. Larry Fink's photographs were of uh, professional uh, boxers. So you had Mike Tyson there, you had uh, Razor Ruddock, you had uh, Larry Holmes, which are who all went on to world titles and uh, world recognition. And then you had my fighters who were just amateur boxers from New Brunswick who were, there was one guy who's got, who's got aspirations of becoming a professional and becoming a welterweight or a middleweight champion. So we, I've got pictures of him in his early days. We got one guy that was a hockey player, but he, he was an enforcer as a hockey player. And so he came to the gym to, to brush up on those fighting skills, which I, I, I did not know that these guys actually worked <laughs> to brush up on these skills. So they had another fighter. And then there was another fighter there from my three fighters. That was a UFC fighter who now was just moving away from UFC and, and started wanting to do more of a, a pro boxing career. So we had all these differences, and I call it the similarities of difference, that I, my work could sort of oppose Larry's work. And so there's this constant back and forth of what he does uh, as opposed to what I do. And the way we decided to present these images were because Larry's work was shot in the early 90s, it's done on film conventionally, whereas all my work was uh, done digitally. Of Larry's work was on in printed on traditional paper, you know, silver gelatin paper, and uh, so we put those that work in frames. Uh, we call it under glass, and well, I call it under glass. And me personally never liked showing my work under glass because uh, the story I always tell is that people. Uh, in the past have taken work out of frames that photographers have painstakingly chosen to, to match their work and decided to put it in a frame that matches the color scheme of the room. So I've never wanted that as a photographer or not as a fine art photographer. So what I, I did was I printed my work on canvas and to make my work just that little bit different because my fine art work does tend to be a little bit different. I decided to uh, create these, make these canvases look like they'd just been cut from the boxing ring. So I, I stitched uh, sort of tarp lines. I put grommets on them. I hung string from them. And uh, I just hoped that people would understand what I was trying to do. So this, if we get back to when we were, I was first asked about this exhibition, uh, John LaRue saw the pictures, but I always told him from the very beginning that they're not going to be printed in that conventional manner. And he was like, okay. And so it wasn't until they'd already committed to the exhibition, they were already committed to space, uh, that I showed them how I present my work. And it was always that, that first initial glimpse of what is this? And all of a sudden, you see it's hit them and they go, oh, now I understand. And that's the sort of resonance that I want my work to have. Uh, for some reason, the boxing photos established that and, and achieved that straight away. But that same sort of, ah, oh, I would like to have in my other work. And I, I desperately try to 
to put that feeling into some of the other stuff I do. I like that it's sort of a, a recurring theme with you that you're trying, like everything you're trying to do, you're trying to do different than everybody else. And in, in, in this creative way, like you're like, I'm not going to, photos aren't going to be hung and framed like normal. I want to manipulate the scene differently. And I'm going to shock and awe people with that in the same way that you weren't using conventional tools and you were going up closer to the people. And it's, it's a very interesting thread throughout your life. And uh, on behalf of both of us, congratulations on being the first person. I've, I know I've said it before because I got to interview you about it before. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's both. Uh, it says something that it it took you to be the first, but I'm so happy that you are the first. Um, and I think that everyone who knows you is obviously. I mean, it feels great to know someone who's been able to get such an amazing accolade like that. I will also what? shout out. That we have a, a while while you're at the Beaverbrook Gallery looking at <laughs> Larry versus Gary, um, our friend of the show, uh, Meredith Batt, who wrote a book um, about Lennon Cub and uh, the first That's queer. Sick. Yeah, so you can see that at the same time. Uh, Meredith has very kindly supplied us with a lot of archival information about Black people in New Brunswick so that we could bolster our Black history knowledge. Um, very great friend and ally of mine. I've known Meredith for seven years so it's exciting that you both had your exhibitions open at the same time i never even knew the connection so that's that's fantastic because i love the lennon club pictures yeah because they're a moment in time yeah and and it's a very but it's a wonderful story but would they tell the same story about black individuals in that time and and so i'm like there's one part of me that loves the exhibition and i do but i'm thinking to myself Geez, if only we could tell the stories of us yeah. uh, back in that same period and have that that sort of documentation around us. Because one of the things that we, we lack is just images of us just being ourselves 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And I think we need that because it gives us an identity. It gives us a sense of belonging. We've been here in, in Fredericton for over 300 years or New Brunswick, I should say. And so for them, the gallery not to have any black art, I find incredible. And uh, I share and echo your, your thoughts because for me to go from London to New York, back to London, to, to eventually end up in Fredericton, just to be the first person to be in that gallery is ridiculous. I should not be the first person. I should be one of many. Or I could be the first British, English, whatever person, but not the first black person to be in that gallery. So I, I've looked at it and I've thought about it and I and I love the fact that I've been given the opportunity, but I still want the Beaverbrook to know, and I've told them so, that I should not be the first and there should be other people after me. So I'm trying not to, to ruffle the feathers too much because there are a lot of people that I'm pulling through. Yeah, it's like when the artist 180 became the first Black artist ever in the history of New Brunswick ever to win any award with their organization. It's something to celebrate, but it also poses the question, well, how could could you be the first? Yeah. 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 Um, And when was the hat, if you don't mind me asking? 2021. This, oh yeah. Sorry? 2021. 2021? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know Clinton I mean? Clinton interviewed him for the Black History Month episodes of CBC as well when I interviewed you at the same time. He had just yeah. he had just won for that previous year for Music New Brunswick. And that's just stereotypical here for all the things black people are not known for and should be known for. Yeah. <laughs> I think that in music, because there are some amazing black artists that have been mm. in New Brunswick for decades. Yes. Um, well, I look at it as, as uh, it not be allowing people to dream. So with art, and art to me means that you can imagine yourself in a different world, a different space, and you can show that that sort of that quality to others. But when you're given no opportunity to show that to your, your fellow people, I find that incredible because it just stops it dead in the tracks and people sort of feel, you know, well, there was an artist before me, so why should I become an artist? There wasn't mm -hmm. uh, musicians before me, so why should I become a musician? And it needs, it needs recognition. It needs people to scream from the rooftops that we are the first, but we shouldn't be the first in 2000s. We should be the first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we uh, wrap up this episode, I do want to ask you what, what is next? You've accomplished the, you've accomplished being the first black person in New Brunswick to, to be in this gallery. And, and I'm sure you're not going to stop there and do many more things. What do you have any other artistic photography related or non-photography related plans well, in the future? What I want to do from this exhibition is that I want a book from it. So I want to have a book, and it can be a Larry Fink, Gary Weeks book, or it can be just the Gary Weeks book, but using these boxing um, photographs to show in one concise book uh, what I do. But that's that's one thing that I'm putting out there. And if you know people that will, will publish a book, I will definitely speak to them. I do but, know. Uh, I do know. I worked for the company that exports all books internationally for like Heritage Canada. <laughs> I know lots of people. Yes. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. But, but the one thing I want to do is, is keep expanding on uh, the fine artwork. Uh, the fine artwork is something that I, I have been doing since day one. And, uh, and so I've got a backlog of images that I would love to show the world. Um, I still want to do uh, some of the commercial work that I do, but I, I want to be a bit more picky and choosy about what I do. And uh, also just uh, change. I've got um, grants requests in, right now in the offering. Um, so I'm just waiting for grants to come through. So that will sort of help me uh, pursue my next endeavor as a fine artist, but uh, in the meantime, I'm just a commercial photographer. I'm, I'm almost too down to earth with uh, what I do. Uh, I think what I do is amazing. I, I really enjoy what I do, but I don't think it's it's earth shatteringly changing. I don't feel, I feel it's what I do and what I enjoy doing. And, I, I, and through my teaching, I try to bring as many people into photography because I've I've had a wonderful time over 40 years of enjoyment being a, a photographer so if I can keep bringing people into photography I can keep making money to survive with my commercial photography and then at the same time still do my fine artwork then that is a, a good life for me I, I want to spend uh, part of my time in in Canada, part of my time in Barbados now, 
So Barbados will be my next stop. And so I'm trying to figure out whether or not I can do my fine artwork in Barbados as well as here in Canada. The fact that I'm uh, represented by the Gallery on Queen, I'm hoping that I can I can move them to spur them on to, to sell more of my work, to get me more established so that I, it will leave me able to do more things. I want to um, show have a show at the Tate Modern because uh, when I was in London, I visited the Tate Modern and I remembered that I was, as a working photographer, I used to shoot for the Tate Modern. So I used to take pictures of, of uh, artists showing their work at that, that venue. And so I would like to be in that venue now as a, as a fine art photographer instead of just a commercial photographer. And so I've still got 101 different amb ambitions, but all my my ideas come from all these different... So there's not one clear and concise path that I will take. I will go this way before going this way and then go back that way. Wonderful. Well, we're so thankful that we finally got to have you on the show and I'm thankful that you've signed up for three different interviews with me and I hope that you're satisfied <laughs> with all of them. Um, if anyone wanted to learn more about your, your work or your photography, where would they find that information? So you could find me on uh, on the web at Weeks Photography. That's W E E K E S Photography dot com. I'm on Instagram now as G Week, and uh, Facebook is Gary Weeks. And so, yeah, please get in contact with me. Please uh, ask me to take more pictures, more different pictures, because. Uh, as as we've found out, I, I do not think conventionally. Out of the box is what I, I'd rather. Go to the Beaverbrook Gallery if you are in Fredericton and see this this exhibition. We're so excited about, about all of this. Um, Clinton, final words. It was great to have you on the show. Um, you're a very insightful man. And just hearing you speak has given me uh, so many ideas for, for for future topics for the show and possibly even blogs, uh, just the different areas of life and reality that you touched on. Um, I found inspirational and I think our viewers will too. And also, yes, follow Gary Weeks and ask him to take more photos. Yes. <laughs> I'm a simple man, so <laughs> yes, I will never be rich. I will never be famous, but I will enjoy the journey immensely. Sometimes well that's all you need. That's all you need. Yeah, um, that's all I want. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, speak to speak to friends of mine. They'll say that I'm not driven by <laughs> just monetary reward, but it needs it needs to happen because, as I say, it allows me to do other things. Of where uh, being strapped for cash does not. Yep. Speaking of, we have a GoFundMe. And so if you're listening, if you're listening, <laughs> support our GoFundMe. Go visit the Beaverbrook Gallery. Follow us at Black Atlantic on all social media. Listen to the podcast. Cropberry, Clinton Davis. Clinton Davis. Is that all? I think that's it. That's it. Thanks Thank for listening, you, everyone. Thank you, Clinton. Thank you, Hillary. It's been great speaking to you again. Thank and you, uh, Gary. hard success with Black Atlantic. Thank, Thank you. you so much.